Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, hello. It's time for a slice of Homo sapiens. A healthy chunk of Homo sapiens is what it is. Your weekly canter through the world of queerness. Big news, klaxon, klaxon, emergency klaxon. We are hosting a live extravaganza podcast live show on the 29th of February in London, in England, in Great Britain. Join me and the like-minded friends that are Susie Ruffle and Tom Allen, who have their own delightful podcast, which I adore. I was about to say I've been on it. I haven't. I think they came on us. Oh, we did a crossover. It's all coming back to me. Um, I love those two. And we're going to do a queer extravaganza. Get your tickets using the link in the bio or through our Instagram bio, if you're an Instagrammer. Come down. We've got to think of this like a family reunion. Everybody gets to get together and meet each other. And I want to meet you all. I want you all to come up and say hi, we're going to chat. And then we have a party afterwards, which is really fun. And today is a very exciting one because I'm on a walk, by the way. Footwear, not very walk suitable. It's extremely muddy. And I have worn my trainers, which I really like, and they're covered in mud. So I'm taking a weird route around the edge. I'm just following wherever there's a tiny piece of grass around the edge of this field. Trees falling down. Gosh, we've had storm, storm, storm lately, haven't we? Today is really exciting. I've been wanting to talk to this person for such a long time. It's Harris Reed. Now, Harris Reed is responsible for putting Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue in a dress. He dresses Adele. He dresses Beyonce. In He's dressed all the biggest stars. And he always does this huge... I mean, the thing that you would probably recognise most is those huge round hats is sort of how he came to people's attention. But obviously, it's tons more than that. But his whole thing is about being fluid, about being gender fluid and what gender means and how there shouldn't really be clothes for, you know, discussing the concept of clothes being right for men and right for women and should clothes be gendered and all of that. And we have a whole conversation about that today. We have a whole conversation about his book called Fluid, which is amazing, which sort of charts his own, um, his own story and how he got to what he was doing. And his story is fascinating. I mean, he was just a student in his first year when Harry Styles saw his work and asked him to design all of his clothes for his tour. So all those cool outfits you see Harry Styles in all the time in the papers. On the whole, a lot of the time, that's Harris um, working with Harry Lambert, who's Harry Styles' 
stylus, what the Harry's. But he was just a kid, which I hadn't realized. And then, you know, then Beyonce calls and then Rihanna calls and Mariah Carey and all these people. And it's all sort of been done from, you know, it was done during COVID from a little back room. It's been very handmade, but it's about talent. That's what's, you know, he's, he's really talented. He's really kind. He is such an inspiring person to listen to about someone who was actually told by his tutors that he wasn't going to make it and what he was doing was wrong. And he stuck to his guns, knowing that he didn't feel like he had to have a certain idea of what men and women were. And he just wanted to express what he wanted to put people in. It's fantastic. So many parallels with being queer. And then he has also been on his own journey about fluidity, gender fluidity, you know, how he identifies because because he was he and then he went over to they and then he sort of went back to he. I think actually doesn't mind they either, but we talk about that as well because not wanting to be boxed in by even a gender label, by lots of people in the press and stuff, talking to him being like, you know, you're gender fluid. When the truth of the matter is, the clues in the title, people, fluid, changes. So he's, he is one of the most refreshing people I have encountered in recent times. I am a huge admirer of him and his kindness and his self-belief and his inclusivity and creativity. He really reminds me of Alexander McQueen and that incredible talent. So it has just been, I mean, crazy. Just what a dream to have him on. Um, and his new book, Fluid, is all about what I'm talking about. So go get it, it's available now. And in the meantime, let's go and have a look at the messages. Oh, I'm really enjoying this walk, it's lovely because I'm walking around the edge of the field, which I wouldn't normally, because I'm avoiding the mud. I'm seeing all different things. You see all little nests in the trees and things. Okay, so let's have a look. Last week, we had Jack Rook, the creator of Big Boys on the show. And I love that chat. He's so thoughtful and Jack will do this thing, which one of my favorite things about people in the world is he'll be really, really thoughtful and serious. And then he'll say something completely silly. Um, and he's just super bright and manages to kind of metabolize all of that into a really brilliant story that is Big Boys. So if you haven't watched Big Boys series one and two, go get it because it just feels like a new step forwards in queer representation on screen and the relationship between a straight man and a gay man. Very interesting um, and beautifully observed and beautifully acted by the cast. Lots of you wrote in, loads of you got in touch. So someone said, listening to Jack Rook talking about his writing reminded me of my inspirational tutor at Cassio College in the 80s. Loving big boys, so relatable and lovely. Can't wait for the upcoming GB News episodes. Ha! <laughs> okay, so me and Jack said we'd do GB News together, which would be gay boy news. And if you actually want us to do it, write in and let us know and the people will have spoken and we will do it. That's a promise. Also, the All of Us Strangers movie episode, which um, Andrew Scott came on the show and Andrew Haig, the director, came on the show. Andrew Haig obviously directed Weekend and Looking, two of my seminal pillars. 
Rob said, just listen to the episode with Andrew Scott and Andrew Haig. The conversation in this episode explains so succinctly the experience and some of the thought we have growing up as gay kids. It's so relevant to many friends I know. I'll be directing plenty of friends and probably family to listen to this episode. So soothing. Thanks, Chris, and thank you, Homo Sapiens team, for bringing this kind of content for us to access. This podcast always enriches my long... Enriches my log? So I'm glad I found it. What's enriching your log, Rob? You've got to get in touch and let me know what that is, unless it's a typo. Enriching my log? I mean, goodness me, isn't that when you eat prunes? Um, and then... We, d- we posted this clip that lots of people commented about, about Andrew saying, there's always this assumption that you're straight. And actually, lots of people were saying on TikTok about it, you know, like, yes, I hate the, the fact that people just assume that you're straight and how it's awkward trying to reverse out of it. And CJ said, once I saw an interview where straight people were asked, so when did you come out? It was brilliant because it highlighted the absurdity of this. I love that. Shkwamalaz said, are you seeing anyone is a better way of asking if you really need to ask. I love that, yeah. And GQ said, I, I've never used heterosexuality as the default to my daughter. Always made a point of saying, whoever you date, love, marry. He, she, or they, as long as you're happy and safe. GQ, <clears throat> um, GQ, please may you write in and identify yourself. Hello at homosapienspodcast.com because that is just beautiful and I'd love to chat to you more. That is such a lovely bit of parenting. New World says disagreed, said, I think only certain generations make that assumption now. Yes, I mean, it is a generational thing, but I, I've certainly witnessed, not been on the receiving end, because I make it pretty clear to people that I'm gay, um, but witnessed people very much younger than me, if such a thing exists, um, assuming people are straight. Pip says it's constant judgment calls you have to make with the taxi driver, hairdresser, random work colleague. Do you make it awkward? Well, here's the thing, Pips. The awkwardness is theirs, not yours. And this is the thing that is hard, definitely hard, and definitely not something I get right. But we all got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and just saying it when it's safe. Crucial fact, when it's safe. Anyway, on to today's episode. I would say this would be an on your RDA recommended daily allowance of nutritional conversation. So enjoy. Here's my chat with Harris Reed, designer to the stars. I apologize in advance. I'm in my studio and it's literally one room. So everyone is sewing as quietly as humanly possible behind me. But we also have a show in less than 27 days and no one's really slept. So if a book gets either thrown at my face, I'm sorry. And if people start sewing, I'm also sorry. Harris, don't apologize. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It is no, a thank true you. honor to be chatting to you. Thank you. No, I feel very much the same. And also it's my big fan of the podcast. And also I love anything that I get to step away from obsessively looking at clothes because I just drive everyone mad. So it's good. Perfect. Don't you find in the creative process, like stepping away and then going back is actually quite good sometimes because you're like, oh, I was staring at this micro thing and I don't need to. 1000%. I have next to me your incredible book, which I just loved. Congratulations. How do you feel? Feels so good. I'm so happy with it. It doesn't feel real though. I only kind of got my copy yesterday because I keep gifting out mine to everyone. I was like, someone's like, tell me about the chapter. I was like, 
Heck, wait, where did I land with the final name on this? And so it was like last <laughs> night re-going through because the last time I looked at it was a manuscript with a bunch of like glued images all over crappy paper that I jammed in the bottom of my bag. So now seeing it like glossy, it feels so, feels so cool. Yeah, it's beautifully presented and I love that picture of you on the front. Go big or go home. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought that was really interesting actually because we're just talking about improvising because you're in a studio which is working furiously away and I've got a digger next to me and I'm like... You so much of your stuff that I'm, you know, I'm mm. reading about was improvised, right? Because of COVID, mm. I thought that was so interesting because it didn't feel like that, you know. Okay, good. Which is good. Yeah, but also like the, I think creativity is so often improvised, isn't it? And people don't think that because the end product is so polished, I suppose. No, but I also think people think that it's such a well executed timeline is perfection everything has the right amount of like love and attention to detail when in actually in all hindsight you usually get a call in the morning and by that you know 6 p.m that night the stylist wants a whole gown from sketch to finish so you're glue gunning you're screaming you're in shepherd's bush you're on a zoom you're messengering something over on a bike you're on your hands and knees you're cutting it out i'm using cardboard to stuff into the corners of the pockets because i don't have enough you know rigidly infusing so I think I love the fact that with this book, it was showing that kind of tactility of the fact that it is all kind of an improvising to the extreme. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful. And I, to your yes. point, I love the final image because it's always very polished and glamorous. And whether it's Beyonce and a horse or me with a big hat, it looks very clean, but you can't see behind it. <laughs> like, you know, there's my blood stain maybe on it from like, you know, doing a bit of the metal wiring or there's like a bit of like hot glue dripping out of the side seam. So you know, yeah, it keeps it well, real. It keeps it real. Your work really reminds me of Alexander McQueen and how it made me feel when I first saw it. It's not to say your work is similar. It's pure artistry and come to life in this intelligent way that feels playful and um, theatrical, but also really, really beautiful and elegant. And people look amazing in the clothes, let alone all the other stuff. Mm. When I was watching that documentary about McQueen, I can't actually remember the title, but anyway, they were talking about his first shows. If you're not in fashion, and I include myself in that, you don't know this, but like his first shows, the ones that got all the press and stuff, like he was just making stuff to send people down the runway in catwalking, but that was never going to hit the shops, right? 100%. I love that you brought that up. I think what I love that you brought up about that is the fact that McQueen for me is one of my, you know, all time iconic designers that I look up to in the aspect that it's less about, I mean, I love his clothes. We all love his clothes, but it's more about how he presented fashion that I'm deeply fascinated by. And to what you were saying is all those original shows, there was no intent from what I read or saw of selling those pieces. It was about creating an environment, a mood, a world. And I do think in fashion, we lose that so much because everyone's trying to do the bottom line and everyone's like, all right, we need to make clothes that are just going to sell immediately. And so I think with my own brand and, you know, whether it's a custom I do or each show that I do, we do sell a couple of those pieces and we do have some amazing bespoke clients, but really that's how we create a jewelry line, which is, you know, our bread and butter of the business and how we do a really fascinating and interesting take on an alcohol collaboration or a car. So for me, it's really the obsession with this artistry that a fashion show keyword is a show. And it's not just, you know, an anorexic skinny white girl walking up and down a catwalk. It's actually an inclusive space of seeing different representations of everything as well as transporting you to different worlds. So I feel very honored that you put me in this similar thought process of, you know, the, the great and mighty and person I constantly look up to. So it feels like it's really there. I was just really interesting reading about how, for example, like Alexander McQueen had a label called Alexander McQueen. 
Mm-hmm. And that also sold like suit jackets and things. But Harris Reed, your label, mm. you were sort of saying that you're never going to do that. You'll always be like a couturier who makes one piece for one person. And it's almost one project at a time. But you still do a show to get that those clients. Is that correct? Exactly. I think, again, I started my brand improvising in a global pandemic. So when I literally graduated after five years of Central St. Martin's waiting for that one day we all waited for to have a show and it didn't happen because, you know, COVID hit what around March and then the show would have been in May, June. And I literally was kind of at thought with myself that I was like, all right, I have, you know, a couple thousand pounds saved up. What is the point of having another ready to wear label in this time? Like, What do clothes mean to people? And for me, What I loved about clothing, being a young queer kid, was the fact that it was a transportation. It was this idea of playing dress up and embodying someone that I either wanted to be or that wanted to play with in a safe space. So when I started the label, Harris Reed, it was really about creating pieces that were, without being like twatty or up myself, you know, felt like more like art and this idea of it being like demi couture. And so when I started continuing the brand now going into the fourth year, I love the fact that what we do is kind of create these demi couture pieces that we only sell a couple of in the future. I would obviously love to, you know, to keep branching out. Maybe there's a bag. I've always been obsessed with swimwear, you know, something fab. Yes, already I can see it. <laughs> exactly. So, but I think what I'm trying to do is, you know, and even touching back on the McQueen is the fact that I don't think enough brands lately build a bit enough of brand legacy and history. And so for me, being 27 with a four-year-old brand, it never made sense for me in the second season to release bags, shoes, jeans, Mm -hmm. hoodies, Mm -hmm. sweaters. It made more sense for me to keep the artistry up, keep working with extraordinary talents and VIPs and building shows and working with performers in the show and out of the shows. So then when I get to maybe year five, year six, year seven, that's where we kind of, you're like, oh, I know Harris Reed. He's not that bad. He's not too shitty. I might buy his purse and Selfridges. So that's what we're, that's what we're working towards. I've also just looked down and realized that underneath your book is The Meaning of Mariah. <laughs> the Meaning of Mariah Gary. That's the book we should talk about. That's the book we, that's the book that the gays in the days want to hear about. And that's okay. Have you read it? No, I haven't. But it's sitting, it's like the Britney Spears book. It's sitting on a nightstand and I have not opened it yet. And I'm very guilty of that. Well, the reason I bought it is because I got the Britney book and I was talking to someone and they were talking about like how incredible the book was and all of this. And then they were like, it's almost as crazy as Mariah's book. And I was like, Mariah's book? And um, so because she had a really similar situation, mm-hmm. you know, like, but just it was it was the 90s, not the noughties. So we were just yeah. like, oh, well, who cares? You know, like there yeah. was no language for what was going mm-hmm. on. With that. But have you ever dressed Mariah? I dressed her for Christmas for a Nina Ricci. We did it for her, like, I don't want to say it's the Jingle Bell ball tour or she was doing her, like, fabulous, you know, where she comes out once a year and sings All I Want for Christmas is You. So that was yes. that was a gag moment when we got the email from Mariah's team and she was like, I want this dress. And she pointed to one of my finale Nina Ricci pieces that I created and we did it in all red. Yeah. So she looked like a fabulous, tinsely, skinny, beautiful, fabulously curvaceous bubble. I don't know how I, to like <laughs> I remember, I now remember that I didn't realize that was you. God, yes. And do you do a fitting or do you send stuff or how does that work? When it comes to like icons like Mariah, you kind of have a one shot to get it right. Um, And so they kind of send you over all of her measurements and they're kind of like, all right, go. And I know from working with a lot of, you know, divas in a good way that you Mm. kind of, if it doesn't fit, it's out. It's on the floor. Next, next dress, next dress, next dress. So I was literally crossing my fingers and toes because that piece we used the entire team of 15 people in the atelier in Paris to put that together right before Christmas. So everyone was like so 
exhausted and ready for holiday. And I guess they just zipped her into it. and It was perfection. So that was a rare thing where obviously if you're working with like a Beyonce or other individuals like that, they'll send their body double, they'll send their body cast and you'll work from that. But sometimes you're just shooting in the dark. But sometimes I think that's when the best stuff happens. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The other thing I didn't realize, how young you were when all mm. of this started to happen. Because mm. once you see someone about and you love their work, like I did with you, and then you see who you're working with and who you're mm. dressing and all of that, you're like, oh, they must have done St. Martin's and then done a couple of things. St. Martin's, for anyone listening, is like, it's the fashion college that where people like McQueen went and many, many, many others, Christopher Kane, etc. Tell me the story because I loved it, that people were, people were not actually, your tutors weren't necessarily feeling your vibe at college, right? No. And there's this beautiful story in the book that I want you to tell me about the day that your tutor tells you you're on the wrong path is the same day that you're going to see Harry Styles to design all his clothes for the tour. I mean, isn't life sometimes fabulous in that way? Well, one person's shooting you right down, another person's there to potentially <laughs> give you a life-changing opportunity. No, I think Cedric St. Martin's, like, to, to what you said, is like, it's like the Harvard of fashion schools. It's like everyone fights and screams and tries their way to try to get a spot in there. And then you get there and, <laughs> you know, in the old school ways of everything, it's very much like, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Work harder, work harder. It was having a lot of that in my first, you know, I was did fashion foundation, which is the year before you get into your bachelor's. And then mm. I was in first year. And I remember my teachers just kind of being like, what the, excuse my language, what the fuck are you making? Like, they were like, this isn't costumes. This is like, I would try to do women's wear and I would make it too, quote unquote, masculine. I was trying to do men's wear. I was making it too feminine. And like, they just didn't know. They, I remember a teacher the day that I went to this famous meeting with the lovely Harry Styles. My teacher literally sat me down and was like, you should not expect to be anything more than someone's illustrating assistant. Like, that's what she fully point blank told me. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, wow, I came out at nine, knew I wanted to do fashion from nine years old, did everything in my power to go from Arizona to London to have this degree and literally not even nine months in, you're telling me I'm not even good enough to be a designer. And I remember thinking, all right. And then at the same time, I was like, sorry, I have to go. I have my first ever client meeting. And that's where I ran to Hammersmith to the, it's like Hammersmith Arena or wherever that Apollo, was. Is it? Apollo, thank yeah. you. And I ran to the Apollo for literally my first meeting with my first ever client, which was Harry Styles. And I remember not even putting together who it was necessarily. Like I kind of like showed up with sketches and I I obviously knew him, loved him. And I remember just getting there and it was like, you know, two, I think two nights only sold out. There was like 
thousands of people on the streets, like, you know, interview, you know, there was camera crews everywhere. And I remember just being like, my, my message just said, like, meet at stage door. And like, it was a sea, a sea of girls engaged, just like, as far as like, I'm like, how do I get to the fucking stage door? And I remember wearing like this bright red fake Prada fur coat that I bought at a charity shop. And I had like eyeshadow and a silver pair of flares on. I looked like kind of Penny Lang from Almost Famous was my reference. The dream. Of the dream. Um, and I remember just walking up to security guard and I was like, I'm here to see Harry Styles. <laughs> And this woman kind of like looks me up and down because I'm like six foot four and I was in like these massive platforms, like seven feet tall. And she was like, who are you? And I was like, I'm his designer. I remember just saying that. And I remember it taught me that confidence can get you anywhere because she led me straight to the stage door, didn't ask for any credentials. I mean, I shouldn't be telling people this. Maybe they should work on their security at these concerts. But, you know, I got led straight backstage to meet him. But it was a funny, it was a crazy moment because you go from, you know, a place where people are like, I don't get what you're doing. This is weird. What is this stuff? And then having an incredibly talented singer's pop sensation. I don't even know what to call Harry Styles. He's so incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, say, I want to take a chance on you. Design mm-hmm. me some fabulous frilly blouses and flares with fabric pouring out the sides. If anyone's ever seen my stuff, it's usually the stuff that looks quite camp and frilly and has a lot of pussy bows. And his style as Harry Lambert is an absolute dream. And he's the one that brought me on. So it was crazy. And then that kind of moment started... I think the most important part of that moment was like, oh, great, I dressed an international pop star. It was the fact that people then took what I did seriously. I went from being a costume designer or someone that didn't have a, a, a purpose or a point of view that fit into the current times to, wow, look at Harry Styles wearing that, you know, matches fashion, which is a huge retailer in the United Kingdom, came to me like, we want to order all those blouses and trousers. You know, Harvey Nichols, clients started kind of pouring in and I started building a whole business, literally a day <laughs> apart from when someone told me that I had no I had no place to be here with what I was trying to make. So that moment for me is why it was so incredible because it was more about the fact that it added a validity to fluidity, I guess, and to mm-hmm. me making something. And even in those early meetings with Harry and, and Harry, with me, basically Harry, because my dad calls me Harry. It's like the triple Harrys. I remember being like, if you want something beautiful, I'm not your person. If you want something with meaning, I'm exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were both really keen on that and... Yeah, it started the whole amazing waterfall effect of just starting to work with kind of every person that I've ever idolized or been obsessed with or wanted. There's so many that even Mariah Carey was is left off the list, I think, on the list I've got mm. here. Sam Smith, Adele, Lil Nas X, Lizzo, Iman, Selena Gomez, Beyonce, Emma Watson, Solange, Emma Corrin. I mean, this is the list goes on. But it's really interesting that you say that story is really interesting because it's such a good reminder that even if what you're doing is right, people mm. are going to tell you it is absolutely wrong. And you mm. have to listen to your gut. And there's actually quite a lot of parallels with queerness in that. Look, people are on board with that people are gay. People may not like it, but people are on board that it exists, I would say. Mm. On, on the whole, mm. obviously, there's conversion therapy is still legal in this country. Of so, course. You know. But gender fluidity and non-binariness and transness are things that are still very much up for debate, which they should not be. And there is a parallel with that idea of like, this might not be what you think I should be, but I am it. And mm-hmm. and holding on to that. And and I and I I wondered where that came from. You just mentioned your dad a second ago. Like your parents sounded really cool. And yeah. were you always told as you were a little one, you know, I'm sort of taking you back to the beginning here. Like we mm. always told as a little one, it doesn't matter who you are or were there conversations like that? 100%. And I think this is where I count my privileges times a, a thousand because the the only thing 
a young queer kid, in my opinion, needs is to be validated. And I think from a super young age, again, like I speak in the book, I speak a lot, you know, of coming out at like eight and a half, nine years old, being like, I like boys later than, you know, as I was kind of coming to myself being like, I think I'm fluid. And like, you know, my mom was always like, literally like, that's valid. That And that for me was wow. everything because I'm six foot four. I've always had very long hair. I have quote unquote feminine, you know, characteristics. What does that even mean? But, you know, let's say what people write about me in that sense. I always had the, I don't know, just like a sachet about me. So I could never hide. I think that's the point. I could never hide. So mm. everyone else was telling me there's something wrong with me. But at least in my household, I was validated for who I was. And, you know, my father, my mom, they split up when I was quite young. But even when I would see him, you know, on the rare occasion, like he also, I think also working within film understood as well that I think a lot of, I think a lot of parents as well, I think they devalidate devalidate their children i guess let me say this as a word we're introducing it now oh, we're introducing it now and i think for everyone to know i'm a very dyslexic and very dyspraxic and this is why i had a lovely man josh help me with this book because i have a story to tell but i fucking can't you know put a sentence together for the life of me all my friends make fun of me that they were like this book is going to just be the biggest run-on sentence we've ever seen because that's how i speak oh well it's not i'm pleased to report thank you i mean again just like two years of editing which is great but I think going back to it is the fact that so many parents, I think, want to like devalidate their children for being, you know, queer or different because they're like, well, you're going to have a harder life. You know, that was the classic case with my now husband. His mom was like, I love you for you, but I feel like I can't validate you being you because mm -hmm. you're going to have a more difficult life. And so I think it helped that my dad worked in film and entertainment where he worked with a lot of gay individuals and trans individuals and non-binary individuals, I'm sure less and less when you get into more of the specifics. But mm. he could see that I could have a super fruitful life and a super, like, a super enriched, rich life. So I think that was so integral to, like, me being young and having that validation that my gender could be whatever I wanted it to, whatever I felt it was, and mm. I could do whatever I felt was right for me. And that was so crucial going into a space where obviously everyone else is like, it's up for debate. We think this, we think that. It's like, no, no, I don't give a fuck what you think. This is who I am, but what I am. Which is brilliant and and mm. so simple isn't it you know mm. and tell me the story in arizona you know mm. you tell a lovely story in the book about being in arizona and at school there mm. and the teacher sat your parents down right yeah i mean that's just crazy <laughs> and the thing that's crazy for me is like this is my traumas are nowhere close to the incredible people that I call friends here in London and the experiences they've gone through and the bullying and the words. I find it insane that, at, again, being probably like 11, 12 years old in Arizona, my mom, my parents were called into the school for a teacher and they were like really confused because I had really good grades because I didn't have many friends. So I was always studying, always trying to get really good marks or whatever. And they called my parents in and my mom was like, what's wrong? Is it about the grades? Is it about school? Is there anything? And she's like, well, you know, your son's going to hell. And my mom is just like, my mom, who's a completely unreligious woman, and same with my father and stepfather at the time, sorry. We're like, what? And she's like, I, I doing everything I can to help him, but he's going to go to hell. And I just thought I should let you know. Like, it was, not a, it was a public school. So the fact that she even said this is just mind boggling. And it was, it was a key moment where my mom realized we needed to kind of go back to LA where my dad was and, you know, find a bit of a more safe space. And then from that point, hence the 27 times I moved, you know, to Oregon and all these different places was my mom was kind of constantly searching for like a safe haven for me. Mm -hmm. But I remember that was a huge eye opening moment because I think it's one thing to tell your parents, hey, I'm being bullied and I feel really alone. And I feel like, you know, my anxiety as a child was out of control. I was having panic attacks all the time. I had severe OCD. I have ADD and ADHD as well. My parents agreed from a young age, thank God, to not medicate me. That's why I think I'm so good at being 27 and being having a book coming out, being a creative director, running my own label, planning my wedding, doing construction on a house, working on an alcohol, working on adult. Like I 
I work because I I have to be doing many things. So they always were able to put up with me maybe being a quote unquote hyperactive child or different. But that moment in Arizona was, I think, the huge eye opener for them where they were like, this woman's telling us that our son's going to to hell. This is not a Catholic school or a Christian school. This is a public school where everyone is welcome. And this is fucking insane. So that for me was a, yeah, it was, it was a lot. Well, also that your parents stepped in is amazing. Mm. And then, and then you went to all the way the other end of the spectrum in LA. Mm. Tell me about that amazing school you went to. It just sounded so cool. Um, Honestly, like the school. So I went to for, there was a middle school and it's called Topanga Mountain School. It was literally about 30 to 60 kids. And it was basically used to be a, a place where parents were homeschooling their kids because they were either bullied or they were different. And basically, it became a small school in Topanga Canyon, which is in California. And it, it was incredible because you had very incredible teachers and it was very academic. But on Wednesdays, you had sit spots where you'd go to the park and you were forced to journal about what was going in, in your life at the time. Wow. You then did counsel, which is a safe space to speak about anything that was on your mind. We also, the way that they spoke about, you know, gender or when you had like sex ed was much more of an open conversation and less of a lecture about this is this. And so it was so integral, I think, to why I feel very confident being 27 and being like, this is who I am. Because from a very young age, I was in a safe space to have open conversations. So that school for me was absolutely everything. And I give that school so much. And I think the fact that also art was so integral in that we were always doing things with our hands. We were always in nature. Like, it was the, the privilege of being able to go there was, I, I can't count my blessings enough. Um, that's the end of part one. We're only just getting going. So head on over to the feed and get part two. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Powered by Spirit Studios.